Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from Your Mind and How to Use It. Written by William Walker Atkinson and published in 1911. It was surprising how much this reminded me of the introductory psychology textbook that we were provided with at university. I really enjoyed reading this book and I hope you enjoy it too. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'd like to say thanks to several listeners this week. Kathy Burns for your lovely message on Twitter. Rachel for reaching out via the website and requesting that I read a manual. Hopefully you enjoy tonight's reading. iTunes listener Interpol2046 for your lovely review during the week. And much gratitude towards Hugh for becoming a patron on Patreon and sponsoring the show. Thank you very much. The podcast is completely free and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, a fantastic way to say thanks is to tell a friend who might also need help with their sleep. Please also subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. If you want, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at bore you to sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Your mind and how to use it. A manual of practical psychology by William Walker Atkinson. It is not enough merely To have a sound mind, one must also learn how to use it if he would become mentally efficient. Chapter 1. What is the mind? Psychology is generally considered to be the science of the mind, although more properly it is the science of mental states thoughts, feelings, and acts of volition. It was formerly the custom of writers on the subject of psychology to begin by an attempt to define and describe the nature of mind before proceeding to a consideration of the subject of the various mental spates and activities. 
but more recent authorities have rebelled against this demand and have claimed that it is no more reasonable to hold that psychology should be able to be held an explanation of the ultimate nature of mind than it is that physical science be held to an explanation of the ultimate nature of matter. The attempt to explain the ultimate nature of either is futile. No actual necessity exists for explanation in either case. Physics may explain the phenomena of matter and psychology the phenomena of mind without regard to the ultimate nature of the substance of either. The science of physics has progressed steadily during the past century, notwithstanding the fact that the theories regarding the ultimate nature of matter have been revolutionized during that period. The facts of the phenomena of matter remain, notwithstanding the change of theory regarding the nature of matter itself. Science demands and holds fast to facts, regarding theories as but working hypotheses at the best. Someone has said that theories are but the bubbles with which the grown-up children of science amuse themselves. Science holds several well-supported, though opposing, theories regarding the nature of electricity, but the facts of the phenomena of electricity and the application thereof are agreed by the disputing theorists And so it is with psychology. The facts regarding mental states are agreed upon, and methods of developing mental powers are effectively employed, without regard to whether mind is a product of the brain, or the brain merely an organ of the mind. The fact that the brain and nervous system are employed in the phenomena of thought is conceded by all, and that is all that is necessary for a basis for the science of psychology. Disputes regarding the ultimate nature of mind are now generally passed over to the philosophers and the metaphysicians while psychology devotes its entire attention to studying the laws of mental activities and to discovering methods of mental development. Even philosophy is beginning to tire of the eternal why and is devoting its attention to the how phase of things. The pragmatic spirit has invaded the field of philosophy, expressing itself in the words of Professor William James, who said, Pragmatism is the attitude of looking away from first things, principles, categories, supposed necessities, 
and of looking forward toward last things, fruits, consequences, facts. Modern psychology is essentially pragmatic in its treatment of the subject of the mind, leaving to metaphysics the old arguments and disputes regarding the ultimate nature of mind. It bends all its energies upon discovering the laws of mental activities and states and developing methods whereby the mind may be trained to perform better and more work, to conserve its energies, to concentrate its forces. To modern psychology, the mind is something to be used, not merely something about which to speculate and theorize. While the metaphysicians deplore this tendency, the practical people of the world rejoice. Mind defined. Mind is defined as the faculty or power whereby thinking creatures feel, think, and will. This definition is inadequate and circular in nature. But this is unavoidable, for mind can be defined only in its own terms, and only by reference to its own processes. Mind, except in reference to its own activities, cannot be defined or conceived. It is known to itself only through its activities. Mind without mental states is a mere abstraction, a word without a corresponding mental image or concept. Sir William Hamilton expressed the matter as clearly as possible when he said, What we mean by mind is simply that which perceives, thinks, feels, wills and desires. Without the perceiving, thinking, feeling, willing and desiring, it is impossible to form a clear conception or mental image of mind. Deprived of its phenomena, it becomes the merest abstraction Perhaps the simplest method of conveying the idea of the existence and nature of the mind is that attributed to a celebrated German teacher of psychology who was wont to begin his course by bidding his students think of something, his desk for example. Then he would say, Now think of that which thinks about the desk. Then after a pause, he would add, This thing which thinks about the desk, and about which you are now thinking, is the subject of matter of our study of psychology. The professor could not have said more had he lectured for a month. 
Professor Gordy has well said on this point, the mind must either be that which thinks, feels or wills, or it must be thought of as thoughts, feelings and acts of will of which we are conscious, mental facts in one word. But what can we know about that which thinks, feels and wills, and what can we find out about it? Where is it? You will probably say, in the brain, but if you are speaking literally, you are to say that it is in the brain, as a pencil is in the pocket then you must mean that it takes up room, that it occupies space, and that would make it very much like a material thing. In truth, the more carefully you consider it, the more plainly you will see what thinking men have known for a long time. That we do not know and cannot learn anything about the thing which thinks and feels and wills. It is beyond the range of human knowledge. The books which define psychology as the science of mind have not a word to say about that which thinks and feels and wills. They are entirely taken up with these thoughts and feelings and acts of wills, mental facts in a word, trying to tell us what they are, and to arrange them in classes, and tell us the circumstances or conditions under which they exist. It seems to me that it would be better to define psychology as the science of the experiences, phenomena, or facts of the mind, soul, or self, of mental facts, in a word. In view of the facts of the case, and following the example of the best of the modern authorities, in this book we shall leave the consideration of the question of the ultimate nature of the mind to the metaphysicians and shall confine ourselves to the mental facts, the laws governing them and the best methods of governing and using them in the business of life. Chapter 2. The Mechanism of Mental States The mechanism of mental states, the mental machinery by which means we feel, think and will, consists of the brain, nervous system and the organs of sense. No matter what may be the real nature of the mind, no matter what may be the theory held regarding its activities, it must be admitted that the mind is dependent upon this mechanism for the manifestation of what we know as mental states. Wonderful as is the mind, 
it is seen to be dependent upon this physical mechanism for the expression of its activities, and this dependence is not upon the brain alone, but also upon the entire nervous system. The best authorities agree that the higher and more complex mental states are but an evolution of simple sensation and that they are dependent upon sensation for their raw material of feeling and thought. Therefore, it is proper that we begin by a consideration of the machinery of sensation. This necessitates a previous consideration of the nerves. The body is traversed by an intricate system of nerves which has been likened to a great telegraph system. The nerves transmit sensations from the various parts of the body to the great receiving office of the brain. They also serve to transmit the motor impulses from the brain to the various parts of the body, which impulses result in motion and other appropriate parts of the body. There are also other nerves with which we have no concern in this book, but which perform certain physiological functions such as digestion, secretion, excretion and circulation. Our chief concern at this point is with the sensory nerves. The sensory nerves convey the impressions of the outside world to the brain. The brain is the great central station of the sensory nerves the latter having countless sending stations in all parts of the body, the wires terminating in the skin. When these nervous terminal stations are irritated or excited, they send to the brain messages calling for attention. This is true not only of the nerves of touch or feeling, but also of those concerned with respective senses of sight, smell, taste and hearing. In fact, the best authorities hold that all the five senses are but an evolution of the primary sense of touch or feeling. The nerves of the sense of touch have their ending in the outer covering of the skin or body. They report contact with other physical objects. By means of these reports, we are unaware not only of contact with the outside object, but also of many facts concerning the nature of that object as for instance, its degree of hardness, roughness, and its temperature. Some of these nerve ends are very sensitive, as for example, 
those of the tip of the tongue and finger ends, while others are comparatively lacking in sensitivity, as for illustration those of the back. Several of these sensory nerves confine themselves to reporting contact and degrees of pressure, while others concern themselves solely with reporting the degrees of temperature of the objects with which their ends come in contact. Some of the latter respond to the high degrees of heat, while others respond only to the lower degrees of cold. The nerves of certain parts of the body respond more readily and distinctly to temperature than do those of other parts. To illustrate, the nerves of the cheek are quite responsive to heat impressions. The nerves of the sense of sight terminate in the complex optical apparatus, which in popular terminology is known as the eye. What is known as the retina is a very sensitive nervous membrane which lines the inner back part of the eye and in which the fibres of the optic nerve terminate. The optical instrument of the eye conveys the focused light vibrations to the nerves of the retina from which the impulse is transmitted to the brain. But contrary to the popular notion, the nerves of the eye do not gauge distances, nor form inferences of any kind. That is distinctly the work of the mind. The simple office of the optical nerves consists in reporting colour, and degrees of intensity of the light waves. The nerves of the sense of hearing terminate in the inner part of the ear. The tympanum or the eardrum receives the sound vibrations entering the cavities of the ear and intensifying and adapting them it passes them on to the ends of the auditory nerve in the internal ear, which conveys the sensation to the brain. The auditory nerve reports to the brain the degrees of pitch, intensity, quality and harmony, respectively, of the sound waves reaching the tympanum, as is well known, there are certain vibrations of sound which are too low for the auditory nerve to register and others too high for it to record. Both classes, however, capable of being recorded by scientific instruments. It is also being regarded as certain that some of the lower animals are conscious of sound vibrations which are not registered by the human auditory nerves. The nerves of the sense of smell 
terminate in the mucous membrane of the nostrils. In order that these nerves report the odour of outside objects, actual contact of minute particles of the object with the mucous membrane of the nostrils is necessary. This is possible only by the passage through the nostrils of air containing these particles. Mere nearness to the nostril will not suffice. These particles are for the most part composed of tenuous gases. Certain substances affect the olfactory nerves much more than do others. The difference arising from the chemical composition of the substance. The olfactory nerves convey the report to the brain. The nerves of the sense of taste terminate in the tongue, or rather in the tiny cells of the tongue which are called the taste buds. Substances taken into the mouth chemically affect these tiny cells, and an impulse is transmitted to the gustatory nerves, which then report the sensation to the brain. The authorities claim that taste sensations may be reduced to five general classes, sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and hot. There are certain nerve centers having important offices in the production and expression of mental states, located in the skull and the spinal column, the brain and the spinal cord, which we shall consider in the following chapter. The great nerve centres which play an important part in the production and expression of mental states are those of the brain and spinal cord, respectively. The spinal cord is that cord or rope of nerve substance which is enclosed in the spinal column or backbone. It leaves the lower part of the skull and extends downward in the interior of the spinal column for about 18 inches. It is continuous with the brain, however, it is difficult to determine where one begins and the other ends. It is composed of a mass of grey matter surrounded by a covering of white matter from the spinal cord along its length emerge 31 pairs of spinal nerves which branch out to each side of the body and connect with the various smaller nerves, extending to all parts of the system. The spinal cord is the great central cable of the nervous telegraphic system and any injury to or obstruction of it cripples or paralyzes those portions of the body, the nerves of which enter the spinal cord below the seat of the injury or obstruction. Injuries or obstructions of this kind 
not only inhibit the sensory reports from the affected area, but also inhibit the motor pulses from the brain, which are intended to move the limbs or parts of the body. What are known as ganglia, or tiny bunches of nerve cells, are found in various parts of the nervous system, including the spinal nerves. These groups of nerve cells are sometimes called little brains and perform quite important offices in the mechanism of thought and action. The spinal ganglia receive sensory reports and issue motor impulses in many cases without troubling the central brain regarding the matter. These activities are known as reflex nervous action. What is known as reflex nervous action is one of the most wonderful of the activities of the nervous and mental mechanism, and the knowledge thereof usually comes as a surprise to the average person, for he is generally under the impression that these activities are possible only to the central brain. It is a fact that not only is the central brain really a trinity of three brains, but that, in addition to these, everyone has a great number of little brains distributed over his nervous system any and all of which are capable of receiving sensory reports and also of sending forth motor impulses. It is quite worth while for one to become acquainted with this wonderful form of neuromental activity. A cinder enters the eye. The report reaches a ganglion. A motor impulse is sent forth, and the eyelid closes. The same result ensues if an object approaches the eye, but without actually entering it. In either case, the person is not conscious of the sensation and motor impulse until the latter has been accomplished. This is reflex action. The instinctive movement of the tickled foot is another instance. The jerking away of the hand burnt by the lit end of the cigar, or pricked by the point of the pin, is another instance. The involuntary activities and those known as unconscious activities result from reflex action. More than this, it is a fact that many activities, originally voluntary, become what is known as acquired reflexes or motor habits by means of certain nervous centers acquiring the habit of sending forth certain motor impulses in response to certain sensory reports. The familiar movements of our lives are largely performed in this way, 
as for instance, walking, using knife and fork, operating typewriters, machines of all kinds, writing, etc. The squirming of a decapitated snake, the muscular movements of a decapitated frog, and the violent struggles, fluttering and leaps of the decapitated fowl are instances of reflex action. Medical reports indicate that in cases of decapitation, even man may manifest similar reflex action in some cases. Thus, we may see that we may feel and will by means of our little brains, as well as by the central brain or brains. Whatever mind may be, it is certain that in these processes, it employs other portions of the nervous system than the central brain. What is known as the brain of man is really a trinity of three brains, known respectively as the medulla oblongata, the cerebellum, and the cerebrum. If one wishes to limit the mental activity to conscious intellectual effort, then and then only is he correct in considering the cerebrum or large brain as the brain. The medulla oblongata is an enlargement of the spinal cord at the base of the brain. Its office is that of controlling the involuntary activities of the body, such as respiration, circulation, assimilation, etc. In a broad sense, its activities may be said to be of the nature of highly developed and complex reflex activities. It manifests chiefly through the sympathetic nervous system, which controls the vital functions. It does not need to call on the large brain in these matters, ordinarily and is able to perform the tasks without the plane of ordinary consciousness. The cerebellum, also known as the little brain, lies just above the medulla oblongata and just below the rear portion of the cerebrum or great brain. It combines the nature of a purely reflex center on the one hand with that of habit mind on the other. In short, it fills a place between the activities of the cerebrum and the medulla oblongata, having some of the characteristics of each. It is the organ of a number of important acquired reflexes, such as walking and many other familiar muscular movements, which have been first consciously acquired and then become habitual. The skilled skater, the bicyclist, typist or machinist depends upon the cerebellum for the ease and certainty with which he performs his movements 
without thinking of them. One may be said never to have thoroughly acquired a set of muscular movements, such as we have mentioned, until the cerebellum has taken over the task and relieved the cerebrum of the conscious effort. One's technique is never perfected until the cerebellum assumes control and direction of the necessary movements and the impulses are set forth from below the plane of ordinary consciousness. The cerebrum or great brain, which is regarded as the brain by the average person, is situated in the upper portion of the skull and occupies by far the larger portion of the cavity of the skull. It is divided into two great divisions or hemispheres. The best of the modern authorities are agreed that the cerebrum has zones or areas of specialised functioning, some of which receive the sensory reports of the nerves and organs of sense, while others send forth the motor impulses which results in voluntary physical action. Many of these areas or zones have been located by science, while others remain as yet unlocated. The probability is that in time, science will succeed in correctly locating the area or zone of each and every class of sensation and motor impulse. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you're feeling sleepy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing a new episode to you very soon. Until then, good night.